University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Well, today is 169 days until the NFL's 2021 season kicks off. For Saints fans, this will be a new experience considering it's been 15 years since the team has taken the field without Drew Brees as your franchise quarterback. One of the biggest head-scratchers of the last couple decades has been why it has taken the NFL team in Washington, D.C. so long to change its name and its logo. However, the swell of progress in the conversation around racial equality, the Washington football team finally announced in 2020 that it was going through a rebranding process. For the time being, they would call themselves the Washington football team. Now, I will give them credit because it's a great marketing move. It allows them to sell new products with a temporary name and then sell another set of products with a new name whenever they decide on whatever that new name's going to be. Whatever the Washington football team becomes, it's long overdue for a rebrand. We've been in our series rebranding, examining how we see ourselves and others. And in reality, the way that we see ourselves matters. It directly correlates to how we see everyone and everything in our world. And self-perception is one of the most challenging aspects of being human. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at what it takes to see ourselves in a different light, such as a person who is forgiven and teachable rather than a person who has to hold on to the mistakes they make or continue in our ruts. And for our conversation today, we take a look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. It's one of the most infantile moments of the church that we are able to see. A portrayal in the book of Acts gives us a glimpse into the nature and vision of the church's purpose. In some, Acts is a, a sociological, historical, and theological work explaining the roots of this new faith community. Shortly after the ascension of Jesus and the extraordinary events of Pentecost, Luke gives us a glimpse into the everyday lives of the Jerusalem church, and he writes this in 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled in awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who has a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. Among the practices listed in Acts chapter 2, there is a very distinct word used here. It's the word koinonia, translated as fellowship. Uh, readers see the mutual participation in speech and listening and thinking and experiencing togetherness because they had everything in common. With one heart and mind, they had everything together. One might marvel at their togetherness by sharing their resources and selling their property and possessions to give to those who had a need. The biblical picture is a, a mutual sharing of self with the group's welfare as a priority, reflecting the church's spiritual maturity, and as a result of their koinonia, 
the church grew daily. One could argue that Luke was merely writing this hyper-flattering language about the Jerusalem church to create this ideal example for all his readers. It would not have been uncommon in the ancient Greco writing style to create a utopian image of a society and community they were writing about. However, as one biblical scholar argues, the sharing in Acts 2, 42-47 depicts uh, what, something that is very rare. The early Christians sold property whenever anyone had a need. They valued people more than property without rejecting the private property altogether. What we're witnessing from Scripture is what we experience by those that lived it, was a group of Jesus followers becoming more than a church by experiencing authentic community together. The concept of, of church as community is different than the concept of the church as an institution. That's the Greek word ekklesia, a more common word used within the New Testament. Ekklesia is a technical term to describe a distinct local church and, and the great sense of connection as a group of community that, that gets together around Jesus. The church, the ecclesia, is the group of people that worship and pray and study and partook in the Eucharist and minister together. But what Luke is giving us in the book of Acts is something far different. It's showing us that their fellowship was about living life well together. It was about breaking bread in each other's homes. It was about supporting each other's businesses and enjoying shared interests and responding to the needs around them. And this was a vastly diverse group of people from all different walks of life and gender and ethnicity and, and geographic origin and race. For the church, it's not just a shared belief in Jesus that forms community, but an incarnational expression of a life ordained by the Spirit of God for excellent work in redeeming God's world. Through the Spirit, the mundane act of breaking bread and conducting business transformed into a purposeful action of fellowship among the followers of Jesus. And throughout the New Testament and the preceding history, we see Many church expressions across a multitude of continents, people groups, and theological convictions. And no matter the form, the church is still composed of people, connected around a unifying act of existence. And even as we witness the growth and organizational changes within the many expressions of the church that we see within the Bible, as the church struggles for, for power and exclusion and inclusion, money and persecution and theology, the New Testament writers continually brought people back to the centrality of Christian community, koinonia. When I was pastoring Mosaic Church of Clayton, our central focus was on trying to create this, authentic community within the church. And we decided to posture ourselves in such a way that we were open to the many uh, ways and possibility that this vision could become a reality. And one of the most unusual ways this happened was because of zombies. That was weird that it happened at the same time. Because of zombies. Yes, and, and that should sound strange as it is intended to be. After worship one Sunday, Jennifer and I got to talking to a new couple that was visiting when, they, when our conversation turned to AMC's show, The Walking Dead. And the couple was shocked to hear that the pastor and pastor's wife watched the show religiously on Sunday nights. And, and on a whim, I invited the couple to join us that night to watch the show, and they accepted. 
And the next couple weeks, we invited other people to come over. Pretty soon, there was 10 of us that faithfully gathered every Sunday just before the show aired to catch up on life and then to watch it together. We did this for nearly three years. Therefore, something so meaningful, friendships were formed all because of zombies. You see, at its core, authentic community is about connection. We connect with people over a, a number of things, sports, teams, uh, music, art, TV, movies, shared experiences, humor, appreciation for the outdoors, athletics, and, and so on. We might have experienced that in, in some of the most meaningful relationships and friendships we've had. It's the feeling of, of joy and home that comes as a result of, among being people who, who love you for who you are, and in turn, you love them for who they are. Peter Block, in his book Community, states that community is about experiencing belonging. He writes, community is the container within which our longing to be is fulfilled. Without the connectedness of community, we will continue to choose not to be. Authentic community, as we see it expressed in the book of Acts chapter 2, and again this repeats in Acts chapter 4, is this beautiful expression of interconnectedness through sharing of resources and beliefs and values and gifts and time and presence. And that's something that all of us long for, all of us crave, down to the core of our existence as human beings. And when it's at its best and purest, the church is an authentic community by which every single person can find connection. But unfortunately, the story does turn a bit sour. In chapter 4, Luke continues this theme of connection uh, among the church by celebrating the way they continue to respond to the needs of fellow sojourners and neighbors, even selling property and possessions and land to the, give to those who needed it. But then Luke us, introduces us to the characters of Ananias and Sapphira, and caught up in the joy and power of the fellowships of generosity, Ananias and, and Sapphira conspire to cheat God and the church. They sell a piece of property with the intention of making a big display before the church of their extravagant generosity. And they were not only going to give the proceeds from the sale, but they were going to keep some of it for themselves, again presenting that they had abundantly given to the church. Except the plan doesn't go as expected. When Ananias presents the gift at the apostles' feet, Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, sees right through the sham. He asked Ananias what would cause him to be filled with so much deceit that he would lie to the Holy Spirit and to the church. And Luke tells us that at that instant, Ananias drops dead. Some of the members carried him off and buried him. His wife, Sapphira, was not with him, but later came in looking for him. And given the chance to course correct on her husband's folly, Sapphira chose also to lie, telling Peter that the money her husband had given was the price they sold the land for. As if one spontaneous death wasn't enough, Luke tells us that Sapphira then dropped dead herself. This makes the list of the most peculiar stories in the Bible, along with Balaam and his tonky, talking donkey, or Samson beating a battalion to death with uh, the jaw of a donkey, or drunk Noah, or Lot prostituting his daughters to protect some complete strangers. So what do we do with this peculiar story? 
Like all the passages and stories of the Bible, they are housed within a context of other verses and stories. Ananias and Sapphira's story is interwoven with the narrative of the church thriving. And they weren't just thriving because they were worshiping and teaching and performing miracles. The church was thriving because of their authentic connection to one another and to God. And, and caught up in the power of the movement of generosity and sharing connectedness, Ananias and Sapphira chose to disfellowship, to disconnect. As one biblical scholar put it, this was a lie to koinonia, and thus it was an act against fellowship. But why? Why would they go it alone? Why would they disengage? Why would they forego the power of connection with others to make this about them? The answer to this question really boils down to two answers individualism and isolationism. And we're going to unpack both of those. Have you ever had a conversation with a friend about something, let's just say about going on a cruise? And the next thing you know when you start to see advertisement of cruises on your social media platforms or on that sidebar ads on the internet, that's because quite literally Big Brother Tech is listening to you. You have given them permission by these many companies by downloading their apps and as a result of it, they try to create these algorithms that individually cater a marketing plan to you. Businesses do it because they know that their consumers hold the keys to their organization's success or failure. And this isn't a statement of judgment, but a fact. We live in the most individually driven culture that has ever walked the face of the earth. Everything is tailored to our needs and wants and desires. We've been driven by the idea of rustic individualism, the pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps mentality that we can do whatever we want to with our lives, we can be whoever we want to be, that we can get whatever we want to get, that we can do whatever we want to do. Our culture wills us to self-sufficiency, uniqueness, independence, and autonomy. Rely or being dependent on others is frequently seen as shameful. People are encouraged to do things on their own, to rely on themselves, to strive for their own successes. There was a fascinating study conducted recently by sociologists that found that over 60% of Kenyans describe themselves in terms of their roles within a group, such as father, mother, friend, or sister. At the same time, over 50% of Americans describe themselves using personal characteristics instead. We are lauded for our success, which can eventually lead us to be completely blinded or forgetful of the many people and resources and institutions that got us to the place of success in the first place. In the first few months of the pandemic, we, we saw individualism on full display by people's response to mask wearing. Despite the unresearched and opinion-based articles that spread throughout the internet of the pointlessness of mask wearing, uh, despite the fact that experts told you that it works, we made it a dividing point among us. It's kind of common sense, like the reason you don't see infectious disease workers running into an Ebola outbreak with a t-shirt and baseball hat on, and that's it. <laughs> Masks are proven to not only protect ourselves, but to prevent you from spreading the contagion to other people. And the very act of doing your part and wearing a mask 
is an act of actually saving the life of others. But we are American, and no one can tell us what to do. And even just saying that if some bringing up this mask-wearing thing, some have immediately tuned out my sermon as a result, it's proving my illustration to be true. What we fail to recognize is that our individualism is leading us to irreputable isolationism. In fact, individuals and communities have arguably been more isolated as increasingly liberating ourselves from the social bonds in nearly every aspect of our life, and familial relationships and neighborly, communal, religious, and even national relationships. It's meant that the more and more we are losing a sense of connection, a feeling, a sense of belonging and meaning among others beyond ourselves. And this loss of community has serious implications. More specifically, the erosion of social capital, a natural byproduct of being a community with others. It's weakened some of our oldest civic organizations, including the church. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, individualism drove them to make a decision to silo themselves because they believed what was right and true for themselves, for me, myself, and I. And, and it's that very isolating place to be in. It's, it's an insulated world by which we, sometimes without meaning to, make decisions that have negative impact on others and even ourselves. Our world and our lives are separated into silos. They are a collection of institutions and programs and worldviews operating nearly one another and not overlapping and touching. It's, it's a culture that has as much more interested in individuality and independence than interdependence. And the cost of our detachment and disconnection is our isolation and our loneliness. Therefore, filling the need for belonging is just a, a personal struggle for connection, but also it's a community problem. As one person put it, if Americans had once consumed the myth of rugged individualism, it appears the myth is now consuming us. And like Ananias and Sapphira, we can feel as if we are on an island unto ourselves, making decisions and taking action with no regard of who it affects and how we are connected to others. Most who are concerned with their independence, above all, think of other solutions that, that, that push them to collectivism, which is you think that we're asking you to lose a sense of identity and freedom. However, that's not what we see happening in the early church. These were individuals who carried out their independent lives, their families, their businesses, their dreams, but also collectively shared themselves and opened themselves up to the possibility of other people sharing from the benefit of their lives. And they were willing to live out the truest sense of connectionism. We are designed for connectionism. It's the idea that I am an individual that has value, hopes, and dreams, but I'm also a needed collaborator in this journey of life and my family and my church and my community. The psychology of connectedness tells us that simply knowing people and having them in our lives isn't the same as connecting with them. As one person put it, Getting along is great, but connecting is a miracle. In our daily environments, which 
could be our jobs, our schools, our neighborhoods, our recreational spaces. We certainly meet a lot of people. We coexist with a lot of them. But throughout our lives, do we truly connect deeply with others? As one cognitive psychologist put it, your life is shaped by things that happen not just in your brain, but in your whole body and in your connection to other people and nature. We don't just see this modeled in the early church, but in God. God is our creator, son, and Holy Spirit. Three interwoven beings in a mutual connected relationship of purpose. Do you remember the earliest uh, Bible verses uh, that, that said God made humankind in God's own image? We are made to be connected with one another. Over the last several years, there have been some really fascinating research into the brain's response to connection to others. Our, our brain entity is, is ruled by a series of very basic things, and sociability is one of them. So in our daily lives, when we meet people, our brain, to say one way, would be it lights up. The first area of your brain that reacts this way is the prefrontal cortex. This is the part of the brain that, is, um, that helps is very mysterious and it's fascinating part, but it, it lights up like a Christmas tree when we're connected with others. This is to say that when we connect with people in an intense and meaningful way, our, our brain begins to release a, a hormone of euphoria that not only nurtures our relationship, but nurtures our very lives. It leads to not only social well-being, but it leads to our well-being as a whole. And neuroscientists tell us that this is a, a place in which our judgment unfolds. It's, it's where our most abstract and most complex parts of our brain begin to make decisions, all based on whether we are connected or not connected to others. So what we're learning is that God designed us for connection. And in sharing connection with others, our lives thrive. Being connected is about recognizing our need for community, both our benefits for ourselves and the benefits of others. And being connected is about sharing a collective idea and belief and set of values and interest. Connectionism invites us to share our passions, our dreams, our aspirations with others while simultaneously receiving passions and dreams and aspiration of others. As a people that create a sense of connection, mutual trust and respect, flourishing begins to thrive in our life. And looking back at our text with Ananias and Sapphira, the debacle, they were buried. The church fellowship continues to thrive as they experience rapid growth. The development of new leaders, the broadening of their ethnic and theological diversity, and the witness of seeing the miracle of seeing one of their arch nemesis transformed into an advocate for the gospel. Could it be that what is missing most in our life is deep connection with others? Could it be that when we connect deeply with others, we are, in fact, connecting deeper with our God? Could it be that, that what's preventing deep and God-centered connection in our life is our rugged individualism and our irreputable isolationism? Are we willing to step out in faith, following the leadership of God, because we believe that God knows what God is talking about? Are we willing to rebrand our relationship with others, knowing that God will lead us to a place of thriving? 
Let's enter into a time of reflection and response before we come to the Lord's table this morning.